Sunday, a preacher went to church wearing a checkered suit coat, striped pants, and a polka dot tie. When the church fashion police finally caught up with him, they inquired about his choice of dress, and he simply replied, well, this morning I am teaching on the harmony of the Gospels. Well, I'm talking about the uh, fashion police this morning. Isn't that an interesting term, fashion police? And uh, there's sometimes self-made fashion police, and then there's actually uh, professional Uh, at least they claim to be. Definition for fashion police is an imaginary police force that ensures that people dress according to fashion. Another one is, it's a term for people who are considered experts in dressing well, who comment on the clothing of others. Well, we could go into some of the things that they said and who they said it about, but I'm not going to. But one little comment they made struck my attention, and it may not even be an issue. But growing up, one of the things that bothered me the most was when people wore socks with their sandals. And they have it right here. Don't wear socks with sandals if you don't want to get arrested by the fashion police. You know, it would seem that it was the older generation that would do that. They would wear socks with their sandals. And I've always associated that with older people. Until the day I looked down at my own feet when there were socks inside my sandals. And I get it. I get it. Plus, the older you get, you don't really care what people think about how you dress. It's all about comfort. Anyway, there's a sense in which every one of us should become fashion police. Now, I don't mean for about the clothes that we wear daily, but to make sure that we and other believers have all the pieces of the armor of God on. In that sense, we are spiritual police in regard to fashion. We're going to talk about the pieces of the armor. We're going to start that this morning. And we're only going to get as far as the first two. I don't want to really take these too fast anyway. I want to get these down. But we have a couple of other things that we need to finish up from last week which is good, and it's a segue into it, obviously. Before we go any further, though, I would like to bow in a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth, and it tells us about the truth that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for our sins. In your word, it tells us the truth that whoever trusts in him receives him as Savior is forgiven, given eternal life. Father, we thank you for your word and the promises, letting us know about spiritual warfare, but also letting us know that we can put on the armor of God through the Holy Spirit. Father, we just thank you as you teach us the true biblical method of spiritual warfare, not as men made it up, but as you, our God, have designed for us, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen. So I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. And in Ephesians chapter 6, looking at verse 11, this is what really started it as we began this section 
we spent several weeks in learning about the schemes of the devil, the schemes, the methods of the devil. Verse 11 says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, there's a lot spoken today about spiritual warfare and certain ways in which to do it, like rebuking the devil, going and finding territorial demons and things like that. But I ask you, is it from the scriptures? This is one of the greatest passages of scriptures that tell us how to engage in the spiritual battle. And it says none of those other things. But the things that it tells us, we must pay attention to. The reason is, verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, we talked about this. This is the hierarchy of Satan. Satan has a hierarchy. Jesus called him the ruler of this world. And, of course, God is soft. He is sovereign over that. But they have allowed him to be in control of it for a time. Christ came and defeated Satan. But, again, at this time, Satan is allowed to be the ruler of this world. And he has those underneath them in a hierarchy. And we looked at some of the scriptures that talk about spiritual warfare with angels. We talked about Elisha's uh, opening the eyes of his servant to see the celestial army of angels there behind them. We saw Daniel, where Daniel's prayer was late in coming, delayed, because there was spiritual warfare with angels and demons and One of them was the prince of uh, Greece. The other one was another area that he was over. So we're not saying that demons aren't in a hierarchy and that demons don't even have a territory that they perhaps uh, key in on. But we don't go looking for them. We don't go looking for those territories throughout our city. And how would you know? Elisha showed us that you can't see them. You wouldn't know. And if you're saying that you're getting some sort of sense or feeling, just see where you went to lunch at. That's all I can say. The idea here is we're looking at a biblical way in the spiritual warfare. The other point that is made is that this is very true. This is happening. This isn't a church picnic. Now, I will say that the Lord has spared us, and the Christian life is very good. It's great and full of blessing. And so the Lord is protecting us from much of the spiritual warfare, but it's still ongoing. And the moment that we look away is the moment that we have a moment of weakness. We move to verse 13, and it said, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, we are finding out the main ingredients, how, the, how any believer is to have victory in spiritual warfare. And by the way, the book of Ephesians was written to one of the more mature churches of that time. Certainly weren't like the Corinthians, the high maintenance church. They were indeed the mature ones. I mean, look at the chapters one through three in the spiritual blessings that that they were being taught that they had. Well, if, if there was something else that we are to do in regard to spiritual warfare, 
casting out demons. This would be the book. But simply, he tells us to stand firm and resist. Now, before we begin verse 14, which starts with stand firm, therefore having your girds, your, your, having girded your loins, before we get into that, I want to just address something that we did talk about last week. And this is one of the areas, the methods, the schemes in which Satan tempts the believer. If you would, turn in your Bibles quickly to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, we want to look at verse 16. John gives us three categories of temptation. And though it may seem general, we see this same three aspects of temptation used against Eve and then even also the Lord Jesus Christ when he was in the wilderness tempted by the devil. What are they? For all that is in the world, number one, the lust of the flesh, and number two, the lust of the eyes, and number three, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the Lord. So I believe, as well as many other things, that Satan is going to tempt us in these areas. Martin Luther said the the three enemies that we have are the flesh, you almost don't even need the world, but the world and the devil. And this is certainly areas that he will tempt us in. Now, we'll, throughout this study, we'll look at other areas. And we have spent the last couple of weeks talking about certain areas of Satan's activities um, in relation to God, in relation to Christ, in relation to the world. And now we're just going to finish up in relation to believers. Well, let's first of all talk about the lust of the flesh, which we did talk about last week. And if you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Now, we know that Satan was tempting the woman, and she finally gave in, and she ate. But but how did he erode her obedience? I think it was through these areas. First of all, the lust of the flesh. So after he said, can you really trust God? Can you really trust God's word? God knows the day that you eat, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. He was lying. When man sinned, it didn't mean that he became like God. What it meant was his eyes were open to sin. For the first time, man was experiencing sin. That's what happened, not what Satan said. But it says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's it right there and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. This idea of good for food. Now you could say, well, that doesn't sound like a big lust of the flesh temptation. Well, it worked. And secondly, that's just the general area of The lust of the flesh could be in any sense. It could be in any sense of that which the flesh lusts and craves after, that is sin, and goes beyond the craving of it and embraces it. Now we see a similar thing with Christ. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 4, verse 3. 
Now, it's not spelled out exactly and directly, but I think there's enough here that we can see these areas. We can see the idea of the lust of the flesh as well as other aspects of this temptation. And in verse 3, it says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, notice that conditional clause, and there's another temptation going on. Are you really the Son of God? And if you are, because you've fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, you're pretty hungry. So it seems to me if you are the Son of God and you're pretty hungry, you could take these stones right here and make them into bread. So there was the lust of the flesh there, the lust of that, the, 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 what the flesh craves. Now, not everything that the flesh desires is wrong, But God's word tells us when it oversteps bounds and oversteps things that are sinful. Jesus answered and said, it is written. Close your Bibles, let's go home. That's the sermon. It is written. He responded with temptation with scripture. And we are going to talk about that. We're going to talk about in this study about if you want to have victory, you need to be memorizing. You can carry your Bible as long as you can pull it out and start paging at any time. But most of us can't do that, and it's got to be in our mind, in our heart. And he says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What a great response. And by the way, I often say this, I don't think Jesus just memorized three verses for that morning. Okay, it could have been any temptation and he would have been able to respond to it with scripture. Now, again, what do we say about us? Well, the idea of lust of the flesh to us would refer to unrestrained passions, sinful passions, passions of the flesh. You know, the flesh is mentioned in Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 20. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, and notice what he begins with, immorality, impurity, sensuality. Now, I know that sometimes immorality can mean, well, unethical. But in this sense in the Bible, when it talks about immoral, it's talking about sexual sin. That's what it's talking about, that as Believers, we must abstain from it. We must not be caught up in it at all. This is the lust of the flesh. But it's not just that. He goes on. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. Is that of the flesh? Yeah. Disputes, dissensions, factions. Is that of the flesh? Yeah. And he gets us with those. Envying drunkenness, carousing, and the things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's speaking of believers who live like that. What business does a believer have for acting like that? And so these are the areas that we are going to be tempted in, in the lust of the flesh. And I think we all well know some of those areas work. Then the lust of the eyes. I believe there in Genesis 3, we saw where he was using his series of temptations to affect the lust of the eyes. So I know what my flesh lusts for, but what is my what do my eyes lust for? Things that you see. 
And they could be anything. They could even be material things. It could be all part of that. Well, in Genesis 3, verse 6, again, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, we don't know what kind of fruit it is. Somehow or other, it's gotten the reputation of being an apple tree, an apple fruit, maybe because an apple is so... um, incredibly uh, beautiful looking and just as well as far as the taste. I don't know, but it was a delight to her eyes. And that along with the lust of the flesh, she said, yeah, I'm going for it. I'm going to take it. Now, what about the Lord Jesus Christ? Was he tempted with the lust of the eyes? Now, he was tempted, but realize he never sinned. He was sinless. And that's the hope we have. Matthew 4, 8 talks about that the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now, first of all, how could Satan do that? Well, Jesus called him the ruler of this world. He's in charge of this world, the chaotic, sinful uh, way that the world is going in this. And again, Christ is our high priest, as our uh, sinless sacrifice, never gave in to any temptation. Now, the temptation was brought to him. I will say this, and I think this is worth our hearing. Temptation is not equal to sin. If you are tempted, it does not mean you have sinned. But if you give in to the temptation, you have. Martin Luther said, a bird may land on your head and you shake him off. That's one thing. But to let him sit there and build a nest, that's another And so the idea is just because there is a temptation doesn't mean that we have sin. It's what we do with that temptation. And so here, it says, after he showed him, he said, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. If you fall down and worship Satan. Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It says, and then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Notice it says the devil left him. James tells us the same thing. He says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In other words, that's one of the things. If you stand firm and he sees for the moment he has no inroads, he will move away. That's what we get from scripture that he will flee from you. That's not to say that he won't come back another day. That's not to say that there isn't a day when Satan himself and all the hordes of evil and darkness will come against you. I think that's what was said in the last verse. It says that you're able to stand in the evil day. What evil day? The evil day when they get your address. The evil day when they come for a visit. When they come in an evil day to take you down. But if you're standing firm in the armor of God, you will be able to resist and he will flee from you. Now, what is that for us? Well, it could be a lot of things. I mean, it it could go to back to immorality, seeing things and it's immoral. Uh, And so Job said, um, I make a covenant with my eyes on what I'm going to look at. And so you say to yourself, I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to look at that billboard. I'm not going to look at anything else that has to do with that. I'm not going to do it. Or it could be materialism. Oh, look at that. Look at my neighbor's house. Look how much money he has. If only I could do that. And 
you start getting greed and greedy and the love of money. And and First uh, Timothy six ten says, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Money isn't the root of all evil, but the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So when talking about the schemes of the devil, here we go. We're figuring some of it out. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and now the pride of life. With the pride of life, when Satan tempted Eve, it was several things. It says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. In fact, Satan even said, you will be like God. That is the idea of boastful pride. I'll be like God. In fact, where do we know that that comes from? From Satan himself. When Satan, probably, probably the highest ranking angel in beauty, splendor, and wisdom, at some point looked at his beauty and said, I'm it. And I guess he was the fashion police that thought so. But the idea is, is that he then began to have pride for what he didn't do, but for how God made him the highest angel, if he was the highest angel. And if he wasn't, he was one of the highest angels, certainly there. But it says from there, his, it went to pride and pride went to sin and sin went to, I will be like the most high. And here he's tempting Eve with the same thing. And I think he does that to us. I also think that in a sense, he tried to do that to the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter four, verse six. He comes to him again with the same conditional clause. If you are the son of God, but he seems to be really keying in now on Jesus's position, his status. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And so it was, are you really the son of God? Are you afraid to test this? And of course, Satan was twisting those scriptures, certainly twisting the meaning with those. We won't go into that at the moment. But Jesus said to him, on the other hand, You gave me a verse and you twisted it out of scripture. But on the other hand, there's another verse. It is written, you shall not put the Lord God to test. You shall not do that to the test. But it would have been the area of pride. Are you really the son of God? I mean, I know you say you are, you think you are. You've done a few good things. And some of them were really, you know, kind of miraculous. But are you really the son of God? And so I think this was the area of the pride of life. What about us? I don't know. I don't even think I have to go in much about our own pride. It is all about us. And you know what? I'm not going to say that we have more of a sinful nature than any other country, but we are proud. We are a proud people. We are very proud. Now, I'm not saying the kind of pride that you do your own work and you accomplish it uh, or your children do something good and you want to you want to just, you know, praise them for doing something good and teach them to appreciate the good results of doing a good, honest day's work. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the pride that kind of sets yourself up above everybody else and that therefore you ought to be first. 
In fact, it starts to get pretty high toward heaven to where we think, well, I don't really need God's advice. I can just do whatever I want. It is the idea where I put myself above God and others. And if even if I don't say that or know that, but I say, well, here's a situation and I need to know God's will. Do we wait for God's will? Do we search for God's will? Do we even use the term God's will? Or do we just do what we want to do, what we feel like doing? After all, it's our lives, right? Well, Christ did not. Eve did, and then Adam. And we should indeed be careful about pride. Really, I mean, if we have anything, we have it because of God. Anything spiritual, we have it because of God. We're not forgiven because of something we did. We're forgiven because he came and died on the cross. James 4 says, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, quoting scripture, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know why that is? Because there's only one message here and there's only one God and he's the one that gets the praise. If you start to brag about yourself, lift yourself up, that's a second message. That's the wrong message and God will say, I don't like wrong messages. It's not about you. And he will show us that it's not. But if we are humble, then we realize we needed God's salvation. We need God's grace now. And humility is what opens the door for that. By the way, salvation is by grace. And that means that if you think that you can get to heaven by doing good works because you're a pretty good person, and you may be a pretty good person, maybe a very helpful person, friendly person, generous person. And if you think that all those things are going to be good enough that, you know, God, he's like a big grandfather in the sky. When you get before him, he's going to say, well, you know, you tried pretty hard. You're good. That doesn't even come close to anything in the Bible. That is man's mythology. The truth of the matter is, is that we cannot do anything to remove our sin. Our sin is but filthy rags, meaning it's got grease on it. The grease of the sin and sin nature. And the more you rub it, the greasier and the the darker it becomes. Well, then how are we to be saved? Good question. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, trusts in him, embraces him, shall not perish but have everlasting life. He's the one that came and took our sin upon himself, and he died for our sin, and I need to trust him as my Savior. I could say I know that and go my way, but there comes a time when I have to take him as my Savior, as my sacrifice, trust him, receive him. And the moment we do, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So don't even worry about spiritual warfare if you don't know Christ because you're already in the devil's camp and he's got you. But if you're a believer by coming to Christ and trusting in him as your Lord and Savior, then we are engaged in the spiritual warfare. But if you don't know Christ, I plead with you to come to Christ. This is what the Bible says. This is what God has given us of how to be saved. Well, These are the areas that we will be tempted in, and we probably know we we already are. This, along with other things that we talked about, are the methodios, the methods of Satan and his schemes. Well, from this point, I want to move now to verse 14, because the real way that we're going to have 
victory in spiritual warfare is by putting this in the practice, the, the armor of God. So turn, if you would, to Ephesians 6, 14, if you're not already there. Now, what I want to do here is just quickly give you a bird's eye view once again. I know I've given it to you more than once, but that's because he gives it to us more than once. Our action is to stand firm. Even these pieces that we're going to see are put on for defense not for offense. We're not going around the community and trying to cast out demons from, from this part of the building or this part of town or anything like that. We, we are to stand firm against the onslaught of Satan. And because of that, Paul intimates this some four times. In verse 11, it begins with, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm. Don't be shaken. Don't be moved. Don't give in. And then in verse 13, put on on the armor of God. That's what we're going to talk about. So that you will be able to resist the devil in the evil day. To resist him, which is a a root of stand firm. And then he says, and literally could be translated this way, and even have done everything to stand. So it's stand firm, stand firm. We begin then verse 14 with what? Stand firm, therefore. He's like, you, you got to get it. You got to get this. Whatever you're thinking or whatever you book you read on spiritual warfare, if it's about things we ought to be doing as men, and men taught this, even Paul didn't know this, then it's wrong. But we have got to stand firm. And by the way, every one of these isn't an aorist. It may be an infinitive, it may be a participle, it may be an imperative, a command, but every one of them is an aorist. In other words, stand firm. Do it. Do it now and stay firm. Point in time. A lot of times we'll, we'll see where people will say, well, pray on the armor of God every, every morning. I'm not totally opposed to that, but technically, in the Bible, put it on. Don't ever take it off. He doesn't say put it on every day. It's put it on at a pointed time. And it's about the armor of God. We see the aorist imperative numerous times when he says put it on. Verse 11, take it up. Verse 13. And then he's going to begin now in verse 14 when he says literally having put on. He's not standing there saying, come on, come on, put it on. He's saying, now that you have put it on, Now let's talk about the pieces of the armor. And one final thing about this. Let's talk for a moment about the armor of God. The armor of God is the Greek word panoplia. It's made up of two Greek words. Pan or pos means everything or all, means all. And then hoplon means a weapon or it can mean a weapon of armor, armor, protective armor. So this is why when you look at your Bible and it says put on the full armor of God, it's because of this Greek word, panoplia, every time. And so when he's saying the full armor of God, we're not going to put on one piece or a piece of our choosing. You know what? Hey, I look pretty good today, just the belt of truth. You know what? It's kind of warm out. I don't think I'm going to put the breastplate of righteousness on. It's not like that. 
This is war. You know, one of the things that you, you, you see uh, when you saw some of the battles that went on and our young men that, that went to war and protect our country and they'd be over in those very, very hot and warm climate and yet they'd have a lot of clothes on and equipment. It's protective equipment. It's either you don't like sweating, do you, do you like peeling bullets off? And so you, you, they had to have those things on for sure. Well, it's the same way. This is not a church picnic we're talking about. This is church war. This is war. This is talking about our spiritual warfare. And Paul saves this for the last. So that's why the admonition is not only to stand firm, and to put on the armor of God once and for all, but it's the full armor, the complete armor, every piece. And what are the pieces? Well, let's just quickly go over them. Let's go through them, beginning with verse 14. And it says, stand firm, therefore, because of what I said, because of every reason I just gave you. We got it, Paul. We got it. We got it. And Paul would maybe say, do you really? Do you really? You know, have, have, have your kids ever said that to you as parents? We got it. We got You don't have to keep telling us. And yet, here we are again. We're here in the formal room again talking about this. And I don't know. I do think that every time you have to talk about it, it's okay to get it longer and longer and longer. And then, oh, no, here we go. Not this long dialogue here. Well, guess what? You didn't take my first admonition when I said, don't do this. Well, anyway having girded your loins with truth. Um, Two things to look at these. The piece of the armor from the Roman soldier and then the characteristic. Literally, we are talking about putting on characteristics. We're talking about living in a certain way, living with truth. That is what we're talking about. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Of course, others include verse 18, and I have no problem with that. It says, with all prayer and petition, Pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We need to do that whether it's characterized as a piece of the armor of God or not. Well, with that, let's begin. And let's begin with loins girded with truth. Let's talk about this. Well, first of all, where did we get to the point of armor? Well, the common dress or the people of that time, both Romans and Greeks, was to wear a tunic. And the tunic, um, (laughs) I just thought of something. It just entered into my mind. Um, I don't know uh, if you ever, I don't know, there's a piece of clothing that that women wear. It's called a muumuu. I don't know, you may not know that. My mom had one of those. It's like a tunic. It's a piece of fabric with a hole cut in for the head and for the arms. It's, it's comfortable, I guess. I, why it got its name Moo Moo, I don't know. If someone knows that, let me know. And that will go into my archives of illustrations. 
But anyway, so it's this loose-fitting garment made out of a material and a place for your head to come out and your arms. And, and arid and dry areas and warm areas and those hot days, you can stay cool. You know, you could stay cool. Well, the problem is if you're going to go do anything, if you're going to do any kind of labor or you're going to run as a messenger or a military, you've got to tuck this thing in so that you don't trip over it. So you have to tuck it in. And this is where this starts to come in for the word gird. Gird it. Uh, tuck it in. You know, it's interesting that this isn't a new thing. This isn't something that Paul invented. Do you know, in Exodus, when they were going over the instructions for the Passover meal for the generations ahead, they told them to gird their loins. They told them to tuck their tunics in. Why? Because we want you to remember what happened when I delivered you. I delivered you, and then you were free to go, and it was time to go. And so there's symbolism there. So there, God instructed them as part of that Passover meal. The idea is also readiness. Uh, Jesus talked about being dressed in readiness in regard to his second coming. And it literally is gird your loins, you know, get ready. And that's what you did. You got ready. Thirdly, Peter uses it in 1 Peter 1.13 and says this, therefore, prepare your minds for action. means prepare. Literally, it's gird the loins of your mind. Get ready. Tuck it in. You know? Get ready for this. And of course, the verse goes on to say, keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, you can certainly imagine then how the military would want this, how the soldier would do this. He's engaged in hand-to-hand combat. He doesn't want to be tripping over or encumbered with this tunic, and so he is girding it up. One writes, before a battle, the tunic was therefore carefully cinched up and tucked into the heavy leather belt that girdled the soldier's loins. So they just did this, and with good reason. Now, what about the loins? What do we mean by the loins, or what did Paul mean by the loins? Well, it would mean the midsection. It would mean the waist. It would be a place where the belt was. But it would include the whole midsection, if you will, if you look at how it's used in the scriptures. But the idea here is if you look at the body in defensive terms, your your body, your waist, with your legs supporting it, that is your support. That's the center of your support. If you know anyone who's learning boxing or anything else of the self-defense things, uh, the first thing they teach you is your stance, that you can't be knocked over, but that you can also be ready to move, deflect, or strike. And so this becomes the center. It's the center, and it's truth. Truth needs to be the center of our lives. Truth needs to be the center of our armor. It's our center and our support. And by the way, Paul is quoting here. He's quoting from Isaiah. And what's great about this, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5, you don't have to turn there, but Isaiah 11, verse 5, he's he's talking about the Messiah. Isaiah is talking about the Messiah. 
And this is what it says. Also, righteousness will be a belt about his loins and faithfulness, the belt about his waist. So the center and the support of the Messiah is God's truth, him declaring it. And by the way, he is the truth. I am the way, the truth, the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. And this is what we're to do as believers. We need to have the center and support of this belt of truth. It's got to be cinched. Everything else works off of this. Everything. In fact, in fact, this is one of the belts where sometimes they carry the weapons. They were hung there on that belt. Uh, sometimes it helps cinch the breastplate that that's not flopping around. So everything revolves around this. Well, quickly, well then, what, do we, what does he mean by the belt of truth? Well, first of all, I'm going to say this, that I believe, really believe in all of these. These are very, very practical. And it's, it's not going to be so much our positional truths as our conditional truths, things that we need to do and put into practice. However, when you talk about truth, and I think this, I think you have to include this. I think, number one, it's truth in doctrine. Because that is one of the areas that Satan attacks undiscerning believers. Believers who who are believers, at least in profession, but they don't know the Lord well. They don't know his word well. Oh my word, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. Truth, by the way, aletheia, you know what it means? It's the real state of affairs. It was actually a political term for back there. It's kind of a, kind of a, ironic way to say that's the real state of affairs does politics ever have a real state of affairs well the idea here is is what's true it is what it is what's real that's what it that's what truth means means that which is real we find out that the bible says that that is an attribute of god of course it is he's a god of truth it says in numbers chapter 23 verse 19 god is not a man that he should not lie ouch nor a son of man, that he should repent. Ouch. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? God is a God of truth and teaches us the truth. And this is where we get our beliefs from, the the doctrine from the word of God. We get our doctrinal beliefs. And if we don't know our doctrinal beliefs, it's very easy for Satan through his minions and false teachers who are lined up with him to bring in false teaching into the church and into your life. Remember, Satan began with, has God said? 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says this, and I think this is one of the scariest verses in the Bible. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. You know, there are doctrines out there that are doctrines of demons because if you believe them and embrace them, you will end up in hell with the demons. And so they're spurred on by them. And you know, it, it, in one sense, it's... It's pretty easy. Anything that's opposite of the word of God, anything that's opposite of a gospel by grace is counterfeit. It's pretty easy to find a counterfeit when you know what's real. And it tells us 
in Ephesians back in chapter 4. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. That's, it's gonna, it's, it, he's bringing it. And that's why we always want to be so careful that we don't allow it in our lives or in our churches. And almost every New Testament book will mention something about false teaching. Be on guard. So, so even though this is very practical, these things that he's saying, you have to say the center and the support of our lives, of the church, is the truth of God's word. But it's also an especially truth in practice. And here's really, I think, the meaning of these are all characteristics that we're to have. Now, truthfulness, what we mean by that is it's sincere, it's faithful, and it's integrity. Now, let me talk about these for just a moment. Sincerity. It's truth without guile. One of the applications of truthfulness is sincerity in what one believes. And we don't often think of these terms, but are you ashamed as a Christian? I hope not. Are you ashamed of the word of God? I hope not. Are you ashamed of what you believe? I hope not. I hope that you believe it so much that you don't care what anybody thinks, even if you wear socks and sandals. It doesn't matter what people think of you when you say you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you love his word, his word is truth, because you love that and you're excited about it. And I think that makes a difference when you're talking to somebody about Christ. I'm sharing this for two reasons. One, because I believe this with every fiber of my being. There's no doubt whatsoever. Number two, you need this. Your eternal soul depends upon it. And the life we live is going to be without guile and hypocrisy. You know, say one thing, do another. Or let's put it in very practical terms. This means, this practical truth means it's the state of affairs for the believer that he walks the talk. We can talk it, do we walk it? And it's in that sense that we need to be fashion police for ourselves and others. One writes, it is the assured conviction that you believe and that it is God's truth you believe. Such a sincere persuasion binds tightly the other pieces of armor. And so we think of that, sincerity. What about integrity? Well, this is another application. We're thinking of truth and living truthfully and living in integrity. The believer ought to be trustworthy. He ought to be trustworthy in word and deed. And we say that often. Good, because now we need to live it. We need to be trustworthy in word and deed. You know, it used to be said a person's word is his bond. I don't know if we're saying that anymore. But this should especially be true for the believer. You know, it's easy for an unbeliever, it's easier for an unbeliever to believe you're sharing the gospel if he knows that everything that you say is true. Everything that you say is not what you think, not what you assume, but that what you know to be true, especially about the word of God. And then that individual could say, you know what, I don't know, but I know he doesn't lie. I know he, I know he believes it. That's the idea. You know, in Ephesians, it says, verse 25 of chapter 4, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, lay aside falsehood, lying, deceit. 
Speak the truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So we ought to be about the truth. I do remember that commercial of when they asked, when Abe Lincoln's wife asked Honest Abe, does this dress make me look fat? (laughs) He never answered her, but he didn't have to. She walked away in disgust. Well, I'm not going to get into that conundrum, but the idea is, is that what you say ought to be true so that when you do have an opportunity to share the gospel, you're a person of integrity in your words. What about your deeds? You know what? Your words and deeds go hand in hand. You can't say something and then not carry through it with your deeds. I mean, isn't that what it, you, you, it, it used to be? Men making negotiations would just say, if I have your word, that's enough. I don't think you should go by that anymore. If, if I have your money, maybe that's enough. <laughs> well, we have to be faithful in our deeds. We have to be faithful in our integrity. When we say we walk in the truth, we need to actually walk in the truth, not in darkness, or we're liars. And here's another one. We need to be faithful in our service, serving the Lord. You know, if, if you're serving the Lord, it is optional. It's not a job. We don't pay you. Because, but you do it because of your, your heart of love for the Lord. And it's impressive and it encourages us. But it ought to be because it's free will, love, I still can be committed to it and ought to be committed and ought to be faithful to it and faithful to the end. Sure, there's going to be other things come along and try to persuade you to get too busy and not do that. I wonder who's doing that. I wonder who's bringing that by. But we need to be faithful in our deeds. We need to be faithful in our walk and we need to be faithful in our service to completion. You know, the example... The example that is given in the New Testament is Demas. Now, Demas was a fellow worker with Paul and others. The end of Philemon talks about Mark, Aristarchus, Luke, and Demas, my fellow workers. And yet, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, it says, For Demas, having loved the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He didn't follow through. He didn't remain faithful. He didn't remain a person of integrity. He didn't remain truthful. The kind that we're asked to do with the belt of truth. So when we think of the belt of truth, it's it's one, our doctrine, and the other one, it's our practice. A practice of truth in word, in deed, in integrity, and in sincerity. And then we have the breastplate of righteousness. So let's quickly take a look at this. Now, when we talk about the breastplate, it's a plate that goes over the breast area. The Greek word is thorax, which in the English definition says it's the area between the neck and the abdomen. It's a thorax. So it's another word that's Greek, but just brought right into the English language. It protects what? The vital organs, the heart and the lungs. One writes this. The breastplate was a tough 
sleeveless piece of armor that covered his full torso. It was often made of leather or heavy linen onto which were sewn multiple things like slices of animal hooves or horns or pieces of metal. Some were made of large pieces of metal, molded or hammered to conform to the body. But the purpose of that piece of armor is obvious, to protect the heart, lungs, intestines, and other vital organs. Now remember, this is a characteristic. And it's a characteristic of the heart and soul of a person. What makes a person tick? And it ought to be about righteousness and holiness and holy living. One writes, spiritually, the breastplate is the devout and holy life, moral uh, restitute of the believer. It is not only vital to the believer's testimony, but also an integral part of the armor in spiritual warfare. Well, now, what are we talking about when we talk about righteousness? And I know we, we know it, but let's try to flesh it out a little bit so that we can put it into practice. First of all, this is not talking about imputed righteousness. Now, we know that happens the moment we place our faith in Christ. His righteousness is imputed to us, given to us. That's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about a spiritual blessing that we're receiving. It's talking about the believer's responsibility through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, everything that the believer does rests on this imputed righteousness, but this is not how it happens, and this is not what he's talking about. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And it's not talking about self-righteousness either. Self-righteousness, how that we do things uh, that we can save ourselves or we do things that... that, uh, please God, we're doing it in the flesh or at least attempting it. It's not talking about that. That kind of self-righteousness is sin. Paul talked about self-righteousness and he counted it all rubbish. It's also a temptation from Satan. Look what I can do. Look what I have done. Kind of like the pride of life. It's, It's not that either. But it is about the believer's walk. It's about the believer's walk that he's to walk in righteousness. Now, I could just say it means to do the right thing when you ought to, and that's right, and that's fine. But the Bible goes a little bit beyond that. You know, it's not just do the right thing. That's fine, but it's much more than that. It's walking in the new nature. It's walking in accordance with the Holy Spirit and letting him produce righteousness in us. A couple of verses quickly. You don't have to look at this one. After we realize that we have put aside the old nature and put on the new nature, though we're still dealing with the new nature, uh, the old nature, it says, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't keep doing the same things to unrighteous living, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead because we've been raised with Christ spiritually and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. That's what we're to do in a changed life. We are living righteousness now. Righteousness that's modeled after the life of Christ. Now, there is a verse I do want us to look at. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 8, verse 4. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 4. Now let's first back up to verse 1. Verse 1, an incredible truth. Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You are forgiven and you have eternal life. Nothing that you have done. Look at verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. In other words, you're not under the uh, demand of the law, which brings about the wrath of God. And he's talking about salvation here. Look at verse 3. For what the law could not do, you can't get saved by the law. You You can't do enough of the law that it would erase your sin. For what the law could not do, weak as it is, was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus Christ took your punishment. But look at verse four. I don't believe we're talking about salvation anymore. But this is for someone who is saved so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, we're not living under the law, certainly not for salvation. We're not living under the law to try to uh, have some sort of righteousness. But the moral intent of the law is righteousness. And we're now able to do that when we walk according to the Spirit. And that's the idea. Your walk is to be a walk of righteousness. It's to be like Christ. It tells us in 1 John 2, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. We're born of him. He's our model. We try to emulate him. He gives us the power through his Holy Spirit. And we obey the word. So we know what we're supposed to do. We go ahead and do it and we obey the word of God. Righteousness is fulfilled by hearing the word of God obeying the word of God, and pressing on to emulate Christ's righteousness. We could talk more about that righteousness, but the breastplate of righteousness is in fact part of the believer's defensive spiritual weapons protecting his heart and soul. Well, let me close with this then as we proceed on and we'll cover more next week. To engage in spiritual warfare against the real life forces of darkness, we don't have to wear a checkered suit coat, striped pants, or a polka dot tie. But we do need to wear all the pieces of the armor of God, especially the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. These will ensure that God's truth is the center and support of our lives. That's how we stand firm, and that righteousness will guard our spiritual heart and soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this and all sections of Scripture, but especially this one, Lord. Help us to be people of the truth, to be truthful in all of our dealings, not deceitful, not conniving, not doing scams, not being trustworthy, Father, help us in our righteousness to do what is right according to the word. Not only what is do the right thing, but how do we know what the right thing is if it's not in the word? 
Father, help us to emulate by being like Christ and his righteousness. And Father, in so doing, we will indeed be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Father, strengthen us. And even as we go through this, one might even say, might we be open to spiritual warfare? The fact that we're very going through this very area? Yes, that's a possibility. So protect us, Father. Show us that greater is he who lives in us and he who is in the world. Show us, Father, that we have the Holy Spirit, the new nature. We could do all things through Christ. And show us that we also need to be participants because it's a matter of spiritual life and death. And we'll thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.